Greetings, dear listeners. This week, we caught up with our friend and collaborator, the philosopher Samuel Kimbrill, to talk about finitude, geopolitics, Ukraine, and the role of ideas in how we approach difficult existential questions. Become a paying member at wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe to get access to bonus content, including the second part of this conversation, where you can hear me goad Shadi into fighting Sam as we talk about the sources of renewal in democracies and the things that should give us hope about the future. This was a very rich episode. We hope you enjoy it. Um, I'm in uh, in Colorado. Uh, We've got like nine inches of snow outside. Damn you. Wow. Damn you. Yeah. We've got a lot of rain and it's very warm here. That's sad. Yeah. That's the worst of all worlds. That's like, that's like the photo I sent you guys from from the ski slope the other day to lament our life choices. Yeah, <laughs> we're doing it wrong. We're doing everything wrong. I like warm weather though. Do you like rainy warm weather? I prefer it over cold, not raining weather. I guess. I guess that's fair. <laughs> do you, Shadi? Do you like the weather in DC? I love it. Shadi loves oh. DC. Shadi's a big DC proponent of everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, we only we only have maybe one or two months that are pretty cold, and even even then, they're not that cold. Otherwise, you can pretty much be outside for most of the year. Did you see that? Not study? that I love being outside, right? But still. I mean, that's a paradox. But did you see that? <laughs> did, you, did you see that? Uh, did you see that uh, study that said that uh, uh, long life is tied to being cold all the time? No, no, I didn't. Yeah, yeah. But then again, is that a life worth living, Shadi, if you're cold all the time? <laughs> <laughs> which Thanks maybe which maybe gets us to yeah. the topic of what we should be discussing <laughs> to today. Topic, topic to- yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sam's essay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we could talk about that. Yeah. Talk- I mean, I what I really want to talk about is why BHL is in Ukraine though. But um but yeah, we should talk about Wait, that where else would he be? Should he be in Syria? <laughs> like what else what else is going on in the world? Where where He's- where else is 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 rubble piling up? He's the West's emissary to everything, everything troubling. Yeah. Either that, or it's like, yeah, he's he's some kind of demonic, you know, like apparition. Okay, that just appears. just to clarify to everyone, we're ta- uh, for people who don't know what BHL stands for. It's a company like DHL, but it's French, <laughs> and they send they send a package with this French philosopher that pops out wherever there's a crisis in the world, and the name. That's name a great is- idea for an app. <laughs> Overnight, overnighting BHL. Yeah. Bernard Henri Lévy is who we're talking about. BHL. He's like a French celebrity philosopher, and who he's someone who doesn't un- wear shirts. Yeah. Oh no, 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 no! He, he unbuttons his shirts very low, as sometimes the French are known to do. Worse than that, he doesn't even unbutton them. He has shirts that don't have buttons at the top, so he doesn't even have to bother to unbutton That's them. That's a rumor, man. Come on, no one has custom nope. designed shirts Shoddy, that I'm don't have sure. buttons. Shadi, you were in the room. You spoke to the man. When he was yeah. at Ben Haddad's living room, yeah. and you didn't notice that he had no buttons on the top of his shirt. I think no. I I, I, even, I didn't realize that, yeah. huh? I think I think they're I think they're genuinely custom made for him. To yes, not have buttons. of course. Yeah. Go yeah. look at. I mean, I, I encourage all of our our listeners and readers to Google the man. It's <laughs> it's plenty of evidence on the internet that the man has no buttons on the top of his shirts. Yeah, but so the I, funny. The yeah. funny thing, though, is, and, and someone was actually asking me this the other day. We were talking about BHL being in Ukraine, and um, we were trying to think who is the American equivalent 
to this French celebrity philosopher that everyone knows. He's like a household name because that's the amazing thing about BHL. He's a philosopher that is like a movie star. And what's interesting about American intellectual life is that we don't really have figures quite like that. Right. No. My first instinct until, was to until say- Until you succeed. Until you succeed, <laughs> Right. Well, my first instinct was to suggest Martha Nussbaum. But like when Come that's on. your answer <laughs> to like- <laughs> Yeah, no. Yeah, Maybe explain yeah. to people who Martha Nussbaum is for beginning <laughs> to begin this thing anyway. She was the most famous philosopher that I could think of on the spot. But even yeah. then, like she's not really well known, like among but, normal people. But the thing about BHL is he's more he has more of the like Roger Stone sort of like vague obscenity as a public figure in addition to being a philosopher. That's what's weird about it. Well, him. no, I mean to be to be more fair, right? Uh he's an activist in a way that our intellectuals don't end up being. I mean, he is a he is a legitimate bona fide human rights activist. Um alongside uh uh I think I think that there Sam, you correct me if I'm wrong. Uh Bernard Kushner was also one of the yeah. one of yeah. his cohort of this yeah. sort of young uh, philosophers, the new philosophers that came up. And, and uh, they all, you know, Bernard Kushner was uh, president of Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, you know, all very committed to, uh, to human rights activism, not, not just passive philosophy. Now, I mean, yeah. there's lots, all sorts of reasons to wonder why, you know, that hasn't happened in the United States, but at least sort of empirically, that's a, that's a big difference, right? We just yeah, don't I have mean, those people. That's true. And I mean, I think we haven't had it since the 90s. I mean, I do think that there's a case to be made that like the sort of 60s, 70s generation, the kind of new left. And I mean, BHL also came of, came of age like slightly after that period. And it, what's, what's interesting is just that it's kind of maintained a tradition in France in a way that like it just it hasn't happened here. So I think there there were moments in U.S. Uh, intellectual life where we did have a much broader kind of intellectual debate and climate that did get into that kind of activism. But um, but it just hasn't, it hasn't sustained itself in the same way that it has in Europe. It's an okay, interesting well, question why. Yeah. Well, now that I'm thinking about it, I do think there are, here are my best guesses as to who's close to BHL's level of celebrity. I just came up with a list of three names right now. Um, Noam Chomsky, Fair. Francis Fukuyama, and Absolutely. Jordan Peterson. Peterson's Canadian, let's not forget, so that doesn't count. <laughs> Which is like half French. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that, I think, no, for all sorts of reasons, I don't think that counts. I think Frank, I would have guessed, but uh, I think that's a good call. Um, uh, uh, call? I mean, Zizek maybe. Hmm? maybe has, yeah, but like, he's not, he's not American. Like he's not an American, yeah. right? But I mean, he he's definitely like a, a foreigner. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I think Frank is a good call. That's always what I sort of fall back on and why, you know, I, I was so But he's thrilled. not a household name, though. Yeah, but you know, His like it probably is who the the end of history stuff. I think it probably. I, I kind of feel like it, it's as close as we're gonna get. Um, and and in a way, you know, Frank also I think um, straddles that line between just an academic and actually someone who's out in the world advocating. Right? I mean, he uh, became involved and served on the boards of all the NED organizations, and and you know has been strongly sort of associated with not just theorizing about democracy, but but actually, you know, being a strong proponent of democracy promotion and that whole sort of vision for the world. So I think that that counts. Demir, I'd actually love to hear you say anything about studying under him, because I mean, that's, that's like such an interesting aspect of your, your origin. And um, yeah, I mean, I, we haven't talked about it. Much. Yeah, sure. Studying under him, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's more like, um, you know, uh, Sice is, is, is a, is a, 
practical school. It's not a, it's not an academic institution, right? I mean, it's a former spy school that then, you know, uh, around that time, uh, I'm trying to remember, I think Wolfowitz was already out at that point, or was he our president at that point? I mean, we had Paul Wolfowitz, um, or did he come after? God, I'm so, I'm so confused on all of this. In any case, the, 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 the interesting thing is by the time that, that I was there, it was no longer really a spy school, and it sort of transformed into one of the biggest feeders. I mean, we still had feeders from Elliot Cohen's uh, uh, you know, strategy program into the military and the CIA. There were a lot of uh, uniformed uh, uh, officers that would come through, you know, paid by the government to take Elliot's course and you know, just cycle through that. But by that point, a lot of people were um, going through uh, to uh, to already like the World Bank and stuff like that. So it had like a big development uh, component. And at that point, I mean, I remember wanting to go to, to SICE, Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, um, because Frank was there. Uh, I, I just was sort of transfixed by the idea of being able to take a class with Frank. Uh, even Elliot Cohen, who I didn't agree with, I just thought he was, uh, you know, just like a really first-rate writer and intellectual. And I took classes with him, and really, I, he's one of the models, I think, for what a professor, what you'd want out of a professor, sort of nurturing students, really getting them to argue. I, I, I really, I feel uh, endlessly indebted to, to Elliot, even though often politically I, I don't really agree with him. Um, his big Brzezinski was kicking out, kicking around at that time. He wasn't really teaching classes anymore. So I, I chose to go to SICE for that reason, to be able to sort of be around these people and interact with them. Um, you know, the, the, the thing with Frank is, like, uh, he taught a, a uh, comparative uh, political systems course. Um, and then, so, and I didn't end up taking that with him because I did my first year in Italy, and he wasn't there, obviously. Um, so I ended up taking... Um, Gosh, what was this course? It was a it was a really strange one, uh, but it was a small course, so I got to you know talk to him, and you know that's how he, he got to know me, and that's how I ended up at the American Interest because he founded that as I was uh, as I was finishing SICE, and uh, you know I approached him, I said you know would like to get a job there, and he put me in touch with people, and that's how I ended up at my magazine gig. Um, I didn't realize that was the origin story that uh, Fukuyama himself. Um, helped you get the job or, or or brought you into contact with people who gave you the job, I guess. Yeah, Frank and Elliot both were, were founders of uh, the American Interest. I went to both of them. Um, and uh, Frank Frank really pulled for me, which was which was super nice. And uh, uh, again, endlessly in, in, in debt and gratitude to him as well. Um, but it's like interesting. I like that he has a twit. Uh, yeah, go know, on. <laughs> no, no. I was going to say, like, one thing I like about him as an intellectual mm. among... Uh, this is maybe less substantive, but I do appreciate that he's kind of an ordinary person. Yeah. He like, he like tweets and he responds and he, he doesn't have the kind of ego that maybe someone like the French philosophers, French celebrity philosophers do. Um, and that, that's always like someone who's able to kind of maintain that sense of accessibility. And, you know, one thing I really don't like is people who um, don't follow anyone on Twitter and they just like put out their stuff and that's it, or people who aren't on Twitter at all. It's just not a good look. Intellectuals gotta be on Twitter. I just, I, I agree. <laughs> and that's, 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 that's all fine. But you know, again, to Frank's normalcy, uh, you know, the man builds furniture and fly, and like 
builds drones and and like uh, and and like weird little automated robots and stuff like that. I mean, he is he's uh, he's he's off the charts smart and and has like really interesting and weird hobbies. He's a he's a photographer as well. I don't, not many people know that, but that's a big passion of his. So like furniture building. Uh, computer programming, drones and robots, and photography, you know, like... It's, like, really a polymath. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely, absolutely. And he's he's wonderful to talk to. I mean, he's, uh, again, off the charts and very, very considered and thoughtful. Um, are, there, so, yeah. are there ways that his his way of thinking has informed your worldview, like, either as a base or as something that you've kind of played your own thoughts over against? Um Look, I, I think I think the 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 thing that I most appreciate about Frank is that is how you know a really good idea can can in some ways uh, I think pigeonhole you and it's 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 mm-hmm. something I you know at the time when I was studying with him and things like that um, you know he was breaking with the neocons over over uh, the Iraq War at that point uh, that that was the origin story of the American interest itself um, so that was interesting to me and I that. You know, I, I felt that was absolutely the right thing to be doing, um, and that that you know made me appreciate his sort of ability to think through the moment and uh, and and adapt to it. And then the the two books that he published thereafter, I just think are, are magisterial. You know, and those yeah. are an attempt to to answer people who have always said, "Oh yeah, you know, end of history guy, haha, history's back, ain't it?" You know, and that's still happening, and it's it's sort of crap that it's still happening because. Yeah. Um, I don't think many people actually read the full book because I think it's incredibly prescient. Uh, and maybe not even the full essay. And, and yeah, probably not even the full essay. They just, most people just know, you know, the... They the, read the title. The title, yeah. And then, you know, I mean, it's... And that's, and that's you know, the other sort of practical thing. I don't, I don't necessarily owe this to Frank, but I've like figured this out working at the magazine and stuff like that. Uh, the importance of, uh, and the perils, quite frankly, but the importance of having an idea that is so digestible and actually boiling down a lot of really smart stuff into sort of a, a heuristic that lets you just sort of express it and, and explain it to people in a way that just like clicks. Um, it's, it's a real talent, you know? And I, I'd say that Frank's two books show the, um, the depth of his intellect and his ability to really think in huge terms. Um, but the other talent that Frank's always had, I think, is to... Uh, to really take the temperature of the moment and be able to write to the moment in a way that is, uh, that's astounding, quite frankly. I mean, he just does a really good job about that. And I, I mean, mean that's, yeah, go that's on. That's like sort of the mark of like actually really top notch intellectual work for me is the capacity to be extremely good on the detail to get like big overview kind of stories, like, like you're describing that Frank's able to do, but then to not end up having it be jargonistic and, you know, like sort of wandering off in all of these arcane details, but it's able to actually say things that are relevant to what's happening. And it's, that's not a skill that a lot of intellectuals have. And, and maybe it's fine for there to be a kind of division of, of labor where there are people writing 800 page books and then other people that can digest them into um, things that are easier for popular consumption. But I do think that intellectual work in some way needs to be able to, to like move between those registers. I think it's really essential, actually. Yeah, totally agree. And I mean, I, I think that's why, Shadi, you're absolutely right to, I think, put Frank among the public intellectuals in the sort of Anglo-Saxon sphere, that we don't have that many of those. Um, and it's partly his commitment to uh, a kind of activism, which is different from BHL's activism, but nevertheless, um, an ability to communicate to uh, to the uh, 
broader public in a very effective way. And uh, and also, I think, to, to capture the moment, you know, uh, to capture the moment, distill it for people in a way that I would never say Frank's ideological. You know, I, I think Frank is a thinker, um, but uh, in a way that that you're able to just sort of, uh, yeah, just capture the moment and and give the moment a push. I think that's the other yeah. thing that 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 I think uh, Frank is excellent at, you know, and- and look, it's hard to come up with a big idea that defines you. I mean, sometimes that can be for better and worse. And, you know, as we said, the fact that that kind, the end of history follows him everywhere is a point of annoyance for him. But it it, it is rare. So if you think about someone like Martha Nussbaum, other philosophers, um, even even Rawls, I mean, it's hard. Can you, can you sum up John Rawls in... Um, in a sentence, like what the big idea or what his big idea, I guess you could liberalism. Right, but. right. <laughs> right. But okay, then- never mind. That's a bad example. But I, I think there's a lot of people who you can't really sum up. Like Richard Rorty, how would you sum him up? I'm not entirely sure. But with, with Francis Fukuyama, you know that end of history is one of his obviously misunderstood, but that, the big idea in, in its full nuances, that that is what he can sort of leave as as his intellectual legacy. No, for sure. The, I mean, but Rawls, for example, though, you know, did end up, you know, his influence was in academia and in just churning out first, I think, just tons of disciples and and yeah. uh, imitators and believers within academia, which then churned out a generation of students that, you know, didn't go into academia. So that's a different kind of thing. But that's not public yeah. intellectual. That's that's traditional intellectual, traditional academic role, right? I mean, that's the difference. And there's, I mean, there's just like a theory of, theory of change thing here, which is like, um, I, you know, I think especially with social media, there was a big um, debate this last week from an essay, I think, in Chronicle of Higher Education, sort of pushing against scholars that spend too much time on Twitter saying, you know, the real work that needs to happen that not many people are doing is to think deeply these days. And one of the, that's the lane that scholars are able to kind of inhabit best. And if they're sort of always trying to shuffle back and forth, um, that it like actually inhibits that work. And like, I'm really sympathetic to a lot of that case. Um, a lot of my view though, is that you need to be able to do, to do both somewhere. So at some point, like the work, the deep thinking work has to eventually hit on matters of public concern, especially in like disciplines like political philosophy, where um, you are talking about what society is and what it's for and trying to orient um, people as a whole. And those, those resources do need to be poised in a way that can make it into the public conversation. And if it happens the way that Rawls has did, you know, that like he just does have like a whole generation of disciples that that is plausible in one sense. But, you know, I think that there is a space where if we could get, something a little bit closer to the French um, model, not necessarily like celebrity, celebrity intellectuals, but just people who have thought deeply, who are able to have public legitimacy commenting on issues. I, I think it makes a lot of things healthier. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, and it, it's, it's, I don't know, Shadi, how do you see yourself? I mean, we were joking earlier about like public intellectualism and, and <laughs> I mean, you're teaching a class now, um, but uh, you know, uh, You've never you've never really committed to academia. I think you made a, a, a conscious decision not to do that. Um, I, what's what's your balance basically on this? I mean, you have a PhD, and so does Sam. I, so I'm 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 definitely not an academic. Uh, You're unlettered. I'm unlettered. I'm untutored. I'm filthy. <laughs> but I don't know. Tell me tell me about like how you conceive of you know what you're doing. 
Um, well, first, well, first, uh, a little a little thing about Fukuyama while we're on it, in that it does sort of speak to the bigger question of how how I view ideas. But in in my book, in the book of mine that came out in um, in 2016, there was a debate about the title. And originally, we had a title that was interesting, but didn't really explain what the book was about. And then um, a friend suggested that I should have a title that's more along the lines of the end of history, like an idea title, where the argument is just right there on the cover. And theoretically, someone can know the argument without reading a single word. Before you go on, what was the original title? It was called The Last Caliphate. <laughs> oh, very, very different career path. My God. Wow. Okay. Wait, but you know you know which book I'm talking about, right? Islamic Exceptionalism, clearly, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you can see just the, just the sheer difference there. And huge, we went, huge. Yeah. We went so far, um, the, the publisher on this, that the first cover proposals that their art design department sent back to me have the last caliphate so i could look back and see what those covers look like mm. it was really an 11th hour shift where i'm like i know this is very late in the game but i'm having doubts about the title i, d I don't think people will understand what the title means mm. and um so i'm really happy that i did that and it, it reminds and when i think about other titles like that that are just like upfront in that way. I mean, Clash of Civilizations is perhaps another example, but I think it's always better to err on the side of that kind of um, approach to ideas that there is a risk of something being lost or of people coming out of something and not and not knowing or not remembering exactly what you were trying to argue or part of what you were trying to argue. Which is just to say that like Fukuyama in that sense in so many different ways has been has been influenced, I think. Anyway, so that's, but in terms of um, like teaching and, you know, listeners might know that I started teaching graduate seminar at Georgetown for the first time. Um, it's the first time I've ever taught a, a university course. Um, so, and I decided that I wanted to try to, to do something new and different and to challenge myself, to push myself and to just see what happens. Um, but from a from a pretty young age, I knew that I didn't want to be a full time university professor. That I wanted to be more public, and I I was always worried about the irrelevance of academics. That um, you know, especially if you're you know focused on a particular set of issues, you're speaking primarily to to other academics, and that always worried me. And I thought that pursuing a think tank course would give me you know, more freedom to kind of broaden out the issues that I work, worked on, but also I would be encouraged to write for a public and popular audience. So that was some of the thinking that went into it. But um, I don't know if that really answers your question, but... No, no, it does. It does. Um, so, yeah. Uh, are you are you at all... Are you at all... Um frustrated at not that you're you know that you've reached some sort of limit of of the the public discourse are you all frustrated with the in, inherent limits of engaging in the public discourse what sam was getting on about the the chronicle of higher education and you know uh now that you're testing the other waters do you 
Do you have strong opinions or shifting opinions about the utility of, of uh, you know, talking to the people such as it was? Well, I suppose it depends what we want. I mean, I really think that what we do can change people. And that's where I maybe get a little bit more optimistic about what's possible. I mean, I want people to listen to this podcast and I want it to change the way they view the world in some way. It doesn't have to be the way I want them to change. It's fine for me if they go in a completely different direction and get red pilled and become like right wingers. Well, actually, no, I don't know how I feel about that. I'm not sure how, <laughs> but I do like the idea that we can provoke a series of thoughts and ideas in people's minds. And that takes them to another way of thinking and processing what's happening around them. So I think that, you know, doing podcasts in general is a very important medium for that. Um, people listen and they they change because of what they hear over time. Just like I'm listening to Happiness Podcast now. It's, you know, maybe it's changing my behaviors and how I approach certain things in my life. So I guess ultimately we want to change people and we want to help them live differently and think differently. I, Sam, I'll turn to you in a second. Just it's funny because to me, I guess I, I'm just like, I'm so solipsistic about these sorts of things. I'm just like, you know, I like talking to my friends. I don't mind doing it in front of a microphone like this, uh, mediated through this this thing. But even in my writing, it's just like, I'm just like working stuff out for myself first and foremost. And then I don't, I, in, a, in, a, in a bizarre way, I, I really don't think about, I, I feel like, okay, uh, that's wrong. I, I feel like I, my best writing, and by best, I mean, writing that that makes a difference to me and how I think through this stuff is when I am able to at least imagine, you know, I don't imagine an audience, but I, I, I can I can I can get myself to talk to someone basically and explain stuff. That's like the sweet spot for me somehow. But again, it's very solipsistic. I don't imagine sort of, you know, changing the world or anything like that. No, um, but I'm not saying that we would change the world. And I think there's something very different between you know, helping a certain number of individuals, like, we're, so we're in dialogue with them, basically. I don't even see it as, um, in some ways, they're just like a, a circle beyond our friends. Like friends of the pod are people that we are perpetually in conversation with, and we're working out our own ideas with them on the podcast. So I don't see it so much as we have ideas, we come up with them, we share them with the public in the hope of changing the world. I think that those are maybe two levels, although they are related, obviously. But yeah, I mean, I take your point because I mean, I, I use articles to work out my ideas. There is a certain inherent pleasure to just figuring out what you believe and working through these intellectual puzzles. So even if an article doesn't get a lot of views, so let's say, um, let's say, God forbid, I wrote an article and only a thousand people read it or something. Right, just right. That wouldn't be the end of the world for me as long as I felt good about it. And it would still reach those thousand people. And let's say, let's say 1% um, of the thousand people who read that article come out of it and they're like, oh, okay, I hadn't thought of it that way before. And you know what? I'm going to, that's going to change, that's going to affect me in some way going forward. I mean, that's anyway, but, um, you know, ultimately we love ideas. Otherwise we wouldn't do what we're doing. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, for example, you know, you and I are talking about doing a Twitter space tomorrow, which by the time people are listening to this 
probably would have happened already. Um, but, uh, you know, to me, it's very different. Like what we're doing right now, I feel much more comfortable with because I actually don't have to interact with anyone else uh, except you guys. And that's, 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 my, that's my sweet spot in a lot of ways. I, 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 I know on some, in some part of my brain that this is being recorded and is going to go out there. Um, but like with writing, when I'm done with an essay, I memory hole it. I'm just, it's over. I don't, you know, I don't even necessarily identify with it anymore. It's like a really weird psychological thing we've talked about on the podcast. But Sam, tell me, like, so you're coming from an academic background and are committed to this public discourse a lot more. Um, what, like everything Shadi and I have said now, where, what's, what's your sort of, I don't know, um, approach to all of that? Yeah, so I suppose I have come into this almost like the opposite way for most of our friends, which is um, like, I, I hold myself away in, uh, in the university for like a decade before I started even thinking about any, any kind of public work and public writing. And, um, and it's funny, like now thinking about the writing process for my first book, um, you know, there's something but the diff- the two modes of writing, like writing for like big public audiences versus writing an academic book for a university press, like they have they have things about them that are both like really really stimulating, but they're very different things. So the I mean the the public writing I think is exactly what what Shadi's saying. Like there is a kind of building community, having the space to explore things in the context of like a, a lot of people and being involved in debates and questions that many people are asked are, are thinking about in the moment. Um, like in contrast, I think writing a, a big university press book involves just trying to like, it, it's very like athletic, like strain your muscles, like to the, the furthest extent that you possibly can to work out how the world actually works, how ideas work. And it's like, it's, it's very, very taxing in that sense. And, so it's like an internal challenge versus an external challenge of some kind. And I think that the, like now the sweet spot that I, that I like to inhabit is like between those two modes. So there are like days of the week where I really want to be in the deep thinking, kind of just push my own reflection, like as far as I possibly can. And then other times when I want to be involved in the bigger sort of public debates that are happening. Um, and yeah, I think that there are different temperaments in that sense. Well, so, I mean, you know, the role of ideas is, is you were saying shoddy and, you, you as well, Sam. I mean, your essay for us, uh, I think, is a, is a really excellent attempt to, to bridge the, you know, again, like the questions, deep questions of meaning, I think, uh, reflected through the current moment on Ukraine. And, you know, I think we could talk all day about public intellectuals, but I think we'd be remiss to not reflect on how all of this intersects with the current moment, which feels existential in a way that I, I you know, perhaps... I only recall from my early childhood when the Cold War was still going on. Um, so uh, I guess, you know, obviously our, 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 our dear listeners should go back and, and read your essay, Sam, um, for some context for what we're going to get into. But It has a great title. Go ahead. Too. Go ahead. <clears throat> so you guys will see it in your show notes. Click on it. Read it. It's called Death and Morality in the War on Ukraine. And um, the subtitle is Remembering That Everything, Including Ourselves, Comes to an End. Can, oh, shit. I started reading it the wrong way. What do you mean? Backwards? No, it's, just one, it's just one sentence. So I... I the, okay. Remembering that everything... 
It, it doesn't matter. <laughs> okay. Anyway, you can read the subtitle. You can you can read you can read the subtitle on your own. Um, the uh, I guess the question, Sam, is is uh, before we get into the specifics of the essay, is uh, you know, uh, Shadi was talking about the you know the the role of ideas in. in I think Shadi was talking about the role of ideas in shaping, you know, the perceptions of, you know, our fellow citizens, at least, uh, in then sort of having, you know, a kind of impact, and I think downstream impact into uh, perhaps politics. Uh, your essay is not that. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's no less, I think in many ways it's more, um, more profound and it asks more of its readers. Um, because it's not a political text at all, but it has implications. So I don't know, maybe say a few words about, you know, how you think about the role of ideas in the world. Yeah, so I think that, uh, Demir, your comment about um, the kind of audience that you're looking for when you're writing is really helpful. And I suppose that when I'm writing in general, I'm less interested in the kind of trends of the moment and more interested in the sort of deeper human substrate that is experiencing all sorts of events and trends. So I, I really understand a lot of the kind of writing that happens in public, which is uh, here's the nature of the situation. Here are some principles that we should be thinking through. And then here's the conclusion that we need to implement in policy or in, in some other kind of action. And I think there's a big space for that. I think when I'm writing, I'm trying to do something a little bit different, which is to uh, elicit the part of our own experience of life that is feeling um, confused, perplexed, sort of on, on off balance as it's going through particular events, and then intensify the kind of reflection that you can do as those things are happening. And as you say, I mean, there, there probably are going to be downstream implications from that kind of writing, but the first step is to develop a space that is more reflective, a little bit more detached, um, so that we can get clear about why we're doing anything uh, in, in in when we get to the sphere of action. Hmm. What date would we publish that? March sixth. So that was um, week one of the war, I guess. It was the weekend you were yeah. working on that? Like Friday, a week after it happened. Um, and I guess already a lot of the nuclear stuff had started rattling around, like Putin had already done his stuff. And I mean, that's the the backdrop, I think, of your of, of your piece, right? I mean, am I wrong in that? That that's that was what what no, triggered that's, that's and sort exactly. of made you think about this sort of stuff. Um, yes. So I yeah. don't, maybe 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 you know, so so reader uh, listeners can can get a sense. Maybe outline the 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 article uh, as best you can sort of verbally right now and they can go in and look at it in more detail but just sort of give 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 a give a sketch of what you wrote yeah so um, I think you know in contrast Demir to your experience I uh, came of age um, without any memory of the Cold War so I think that my first political memory was maybe Bill Clinton getting elected um, as like very small person and um, and then it was it was kind of my 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 memory is of the feeling of relief in adults around me uh, as the Cold War had receded, but not any of the kind of pre previous tension around these things. And so, part of what I found very uh, striking in the past several weeks is 
the return of something like finitude to the kind of American imagination of the world, where for most of my uh, life, when I think about the major political events, so uh, like Gen Gen X protests against Iraq, millennial protests about capitalism, the recent protests about Black Lives Matter, most of them have as a fixed point something like American power. The idea that America is the actual kind of omnipotent plane against which we need to play out our debates in all sorts of ways. And what was very striking for me about the first week of, uh, and like you say, this is now about a week and a half old, maybe two weeks, um, the first week of the events in Ukraine playing out was the return of something like a consciousness that America is not the only force in the world. And I, I think I think that's it. What the reason I wanted to write this piece is actually to affirm that to say that the other the other picture where you think the only thing that's relevant is like one particular power without any external constraint is actually a very deeply artificial understanding of reality. It's always been artificial, but we've been able to get away with that artificiality for a time. And now that we're being confronted with the possibility of real escalation uh, that could end up in in nuclear conflict, that we have to recalibrate very quickly. And and I'll say, I think that the piece is relevant, not only, um, you know, in a context where Putin ends up showing himself to be very strong. I, I think that, uh, I think, Demir, you were tweeting a little bit about this. In almost any case, we're back in a world that does start to look much more multipolar. How that will play out is, um, you know, that's the stuff of contingency and 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 fortune, you know, like we we actually don't have any idea how the future of this is going to go, but there is a sense that um, there's a return of something besides just the the unipolar moment, and and I think that that's actually really interesting and really important to be reflecting on. But so, uh, you know, I'll pull Shadi in in a second on this because I, I, you know, I, I think where Shadi latches on to your argument, and it's something you didn't uh, touch on right now, it's. You know the last sentence uh, of your of your essay, and it, it's an argument that's threaded throughout the whole thing. Uh, yes, you know I think a big thrust of the essay is the is the finitude and sort of grappling with that, and I think that's very powerful. But there's another thread to it, which is uh, again in this last sentence: what is essential instead are the are the disciplines Socrates commends, clarity about our own limits, which we've just discussed. But then also you add courage to see what should be valued and the capacity to act when no option is ideal. Now, again, Shadi, I, I, I don't think I'm putting words in your mouth, is that, you know, one of our, uh, you know, divergences on the podcast in, in arguing this is, uh, you know, that question of, of what is valued and what should be risked and how much risk should be put on the line for this concept of values. Uh, you both know that I personally am not enamored of, you know, putting these values at, you know, this kind of transcendent level. Uh, I generally, in my own thinking, I, I always downplay these as, as things that we tell ourselves and how we structure our lives on the personal level, even maybe on the, on the community and maybe even as far as the national level, though I, I believe it even breaks down at that, at that point. Um, but that these are ultimately, you know, fictions that motivate us, but nevertheless, you know, aren't transcendent. So, uh, you know, that informs how I, think about what should be done or ought to be done, how we, how we ought to interact with the world. Whereas I'm fairly sure, Shadi, you find that really offensive on some deep level. I don't find it really offensive. 
somewhat. I just disagree with it. Sure. I mean, I, by <laughs> offensive, I don't mean like you you hate me. I just think like it 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 rubs against you in a way that is that I think when what you most disliked about my uh, no fly zone piece is that if I'm not wrong, and I think Sam. Very interestingly, I think asks and very provocatively asks a question of where is that line in a in a way that you know you and I talking about in terms of policy uh, we don't we don't get at that though I think you get at it more than I do right does that make sense How, how do I get it get, tell, say more Well you 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 uh, are you would what you don't like is that. Um, you know, the world is imposing these limits and you say, well, there are values that we should stand up for and risk more for, uh, that these things are transcendent and have an impact and therefore we need to be more and you're being overcautious, over uh, an uh, overabundance of cautiousness that is probably bred by your not believing nearly as much as you should about the transcendence of values. Yeah, I suppose as pessimistic and dark as I am, there's a part of me that still sees the world, the world as um, enchanted. That there's something, that there's a kind of mystical plane that is beyond just like objective reality, and that's also the realm of ideas, values, sometimes even morality, um, and and our perceptions of the metaphysical and the eternal. So heaven, hell, afterlife, death. I mean, I'm I I think about death. I think it's fair to say more, more than you do, and that's not a criticism, Demir. I think you've said that outright that it doesn't preoccupy you as much, and in some ways, you've come to terms. Not to put words in your mouth, but I I don't know. But did you say that you came to terms with your own death? I might have said or that. I don't know. Whatever. Like I said, I don't I don't think about podcasts after they're in the can. But yeah, probably <laughs> go back and listen. Find it. <laughs> yeah, it's in the it's in the episode that we did with. Um, Joy Clarkson on um, the pursuit of happiness yeah. and and all that. So, which feels like a different world because that's before the Ukraine war started. So we did have the luxury to kind of talk about happiness and so forth. But um, I, I guess like I'm always afraid of, I don't know exactly where I'm going with this, but um, to make it, to, to make it a little bit more relevant to Ukraine, I think that, um, there's two things in Sam's piece that I think really, really stand out to me that are, are worth reflecting on. The first is his point of departure about Socrates. So what's really, I mean, what's cool about a piece like this, and I hope we can do more of this at Wisdom of Crowds, is how do you talk about Ukraine by way of Socrates? I mean, like that's not an easy thing to do, and I presume that others have not attempted this. Except that's, that's going to be our new catchphrase under the, on the podcast: talking about <laughs> Ukraine by way of Socrates. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Can I, but can I love I just it. say mm, people mm. because because of the um the uh events around Caesar's death in, in March, uh people have been sending me memes about about Caesar all all week long. I just open up my my text and every time more memes in there, which I guess means that the brand is kind of kind of working. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, finish your thought, Shadi. Yeah, so I don't know if I don't know if listeners will know the full story, but Socrates was executed. He was a Greek. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> he was a man. Also, kind of a celebrity philosopher like BHL. Yeah, but just a long time ago. Yeah, but he had these. <laughs> he had these devoted followers, and they knew that his death was forthcoming shortly in a couple hours, I presume. Yeah, and so they're yeah, having a dinner party, huh? Sorry. Yeah, that's exactly. 
Yeah. So they're having a dinner party, him and his followers, knowing that he is about to die. And I, I believe he was killed by lethal injection, right? Hemlock. No, no, by drinking hemlock. Ate it. Inject. Inject anything. Okay. Sorry. I don't know why I thought that. Those sharp Greek, ancient Greek needles. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, go on. Yeah, that's weird. I guess they didn't really have. Um, <laughs> I don't know what the needle system was back then. Anyway, but his his um, his dinner partner partners companions are very sad, obviously. But Socrates chastises them. He says, "Do not despair. This should not be surprising. Death is real. The point of philosophy, he seems to insinuate." is that you have to face death and you have to ready yourself to die and to die well. And this is what he tells them. This is his final message to his devoted followers at that dinner party. More like a wake, I think like a living wake in his prison cell. But yeah, I think that's right. Oh, I guess it's not a, it's not a party, I guess, if They're it's not, yeah. quite so mournful. Yeah. But anyway, this is, I think this is a good sort of like opening for a reflection on where we're at because you know we shouldn't death should be part like when we're thinking about the things that we think about we should be aware that death isn't so far away and that has major moral and political implications okay fast forward to some of some of those implications so the whole debate about a no-fly zone which um i've been pilloried about my piece on twitter all day and not to say that I'm sour about it, because ultimately I want people to, to read the piece and think about it. So if it's pissing people off, then it means that some people are read more people are reading it. And I care about the ideas in the piece. And we'll include a link in the show notes for those of you who are interested in seeing how much you will dislike the piece. But um, but I think the, the question of how far we should be willing to go vis-a-vis -vis Russia, how much we should be willing to risk to save Ukrainian lives is ultimately a question. It's not just a question of an analysis of nuclear deterrence or how likely an escalatory spiral that leads to nuclear nuclear war might, might be. It's also a question about how we prioritize certain values over others. And there's no way to have a discussion about what to do in Ukraine without realizing that each and every, our, our own personal sense of morality is going to drive the conversation. It's not, it's, not an, it's not simply a debate about objective reality. It's not like you have two sides and they're like, okay, here's, here's case one, here's case number two, let's decide which is more appropriate or prudent after we consider the information on both sides. Like all, like all difficult questions in life, it is about irreconcilable moral perspectives. Now, um, that's just a kind of entry point. So I think that's what makes some of these conversations so difficult to to resolve, as as we've often talked about in the podcast, because um, it's not just about analysis. Right. I mean, I think, you know, so what's good about your approach, Sam, I think in general um, and I think what's different from your approach to how Shadi and I are doing the, this is that uh, you draw attention to these things without necessarily coming down on it one way or the other. Um, I mean, what's 
How, how are you thinking about it? I mean, to put you on the spot a little bit, given the, the you know, given your essay and given, you know, your, your approach to the world and the role of ideas and things like that, the role of values and, you know, what's important. Um, how do you, how, what's, how do you, how are you, how are you even grappling with the moment? Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. I mean, so the first thing I'll say is that the, the background assumption for me here is that we have been in a period of complacency or of just kind of laziness when it comes to these kinds of debates about, um, about values. So we, so, you know, I, Demir, I think in many ways you and I have a similar distaste for the, um, the kind of discussion about democracy promotion or international world order that rule, rule-based order that is so, so common in DC circles, but often doesn't really tell you very much. But I, I wonder whether we have frustration with that way of talking for opposite reasons. For, for me, it's because um, I actually think that that you can have very substantive debates about what matters, why it matters, how how life life works, how it should be structured, what kinds of things you're actually willing to sacrifice for. And I think that you actually think about those things a lot, but that you like to put a little bit more of just a kind of strategic register on it. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I'd be interested to to talk about to talk about that. To, to the like specific question about the moment, though, and and maybe maybe we can talk about the, the fly zone thing specifically. I, I suppose that I think that because we've been in an, an era where we use values language in a very cheap way, without interrogating it, without really refining it very carefully, we find ourselves actually in a um, uh, a kind of vulnerable position, which is now is a time when we have to make big decisions about action. And we have a lot of technical capacity. We have all kinds of things that we could do, but we actually have pretty poor capacity to reflect on why we would do something and, and how that would work. Um, and I, th- I think that, that that leaves us actually like strategically pretty vulnerable. I, I suppose that I, um, I'm sympathetic to the case that we should be pretty restrained, that um, we're seeing a number of re- genuinely very, very tragic events pl- playing out, but that the tragedy of life is not sufficient to motivate action. You actually have to have an understanding of where tragedy fits and and what what you can do. I mean, that's that's part of what I want to be emphasizing um, as I'm thinking about this and and in the piece is the fi- the finitude of of every aspect of life, and that includes America's own side. It's not as though America is omnipotent either. And being able to understand that finitude and then make calculated decisions in that in the face of that makes a lot of sense to me. All of that said, I mean, I also think that I'm, I would like to keep the kind of thing Shadi's arguing for these days open, which is, um, don't let yourself become callous to the possibility of 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 needing to act much more forcefully. Like, a lot of what I want to do is kind of stay within the tensions, whereas I think a lot of the debate ends up getting um, the tensions get collapsed because people separate into camps that are very antagonistic against you know, each each other. I can say more about the specifics. Of it. Yeah. You know, for me, just even hearing you say that, uh, the reason I, I, I end up, I mean, I, I, we probably end up in the same place on it. The, the reason I uh, take the approach I do on this sort of stuff is that, you know, the capacity to act uh, is at the limit tested in, you know, basically war, right? And, and, uh, the ability to basically impose one's 
set of worldview, whatever, one set of desires, one set of, you know, uh, desiderata on the vanquished, ultimately. And we can talk about, you know, what, uh, whether our, our, our conception of the world is more just or, or it, 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 it comports with human temperament and leads to better outcomes. All of that is fine. But, you know, when thinking about what can be do, what can be done, what I like about your essay is, Again, in recognizing the finitude and then seeing, you know, balancing uh, a recognition that none of these things are final or total um, and then pushing. For me, I don't need a reason to, you know, we're the good guys and therefore we must push. But to me, it's it, it ends up being it's it's, you know, if you're not pushing, you're falling back. And that's that's the, the ultimate sort of dynamic for me uh, is is that. And, you know, if you ask me, like, well, why don't you just, you know, lay back and take it? It's easier that way. Well, I'll say, well, you know, that's just you're a loser, basically. I mean, I don't need I don't need a higher moral calling to transforming the world for any of this. I'm on this one team. We're being challenged a lot. Uh, all sorts of mistakes were made to get here. But none of that really matters to me anymore. Now it's like what what can be done uh, that ends up being the best for our side. And uh, that includes diminishing the other side. But you've get, always said, Demir, that you don't necessarily think of things in terms of teams. Yeah, I mean, we've 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 abraded against this in previous episodes. Uh, like in international relations, it's not like team like rah rah, but more like like you know, I'm going to make you lose, and it's what one does. You know, that's. But that's, why is that important? Why is it so important to make the other side lose? Where does know. that come from? I, I think that's, I, I guess I'd put it, you know, if you, you drill down to priors, I would say if there's one thing that unites humanity, it's that drive. Um, and uh, I think to think otherwise and to prioritize other things over it, I'm not saying those other things don't exist. Clearly, win-win outcomes are possible. Clearly, prosperity based on uh, you know, certain other premises uh, for humanity uh, is real. We have seen it. Our prosperity, our material prosperity has, has risen under a certain regime that we have been able to, through the preponderance of our power, to uh, enforce on a large part of the globe. Um, that's all fine, but that's not why we do it. Because the main thing is, is, is this, this uh, sort of primal, like, no, you don't, like pushing back. And I think, you know, we, we dwell a lot on, on, on Putin's own sort of, you know, messianic sort of ideas about, about Russiandom and his role in history. Uh, we dwell a lot about, about uh, you know, whether it's the threat of democracy coming to Russia, whether it's, uh, you know, the geoeconomic strength of Europe and the integration of Ukraine and Europe or the military might of NATO and the potential uh, over time integration of Ukraine into NATO, whether these are the causes. But I think you can boil down all of that Putin stuff to uh, you're coming at me and no, you don't. And uh, where we find ourselves right now is he is pushing back really hard on that, uh, killing a lot of people, brutal, like doing war, like, you know, we like to think that we don't do war that way. Um, and uh, and uh, my answer is like, oh, shit, like we're in the situation right now. 
his win is definitely our loss at this point. So how can we how can we turn this around? And you know, my analysis of the of this war ultimately boils down to he really screwed up. This is a huge opportunity for us ultimately outside of all the rest of it. So how do we how do we actually uh, you know think past this war? And that's what I'm spending a lot of my time doing is thinking past this war and thinking about uh, you know what's the best way to to. A, on the one hand, not all end up dead, but B, on the other hand, uh, really screw them for this. Okay, so Demir, the tribal, the the sort of tribal instinct or drive to make the other side lose, I realize that that is real and true for humanity, but why is it important to you specifically? No, here, I'll, I'll even give you, like, I think you weren't in our... Carl Schmidt reading group when we were discussing Schmidt right before no, the I war broke it. out. I, I, I'll, here, I'll give you, I'll give you a, a, call it a philosophical argument uh, on this. Not necessarily why it's important to me, but why I think it's correcter and I, defensible from, I can argue the point, which is that uh, all the other stuff is built on uh, the ability to enforce your writ. All the other good stuff that we claim is transcendent is actually built on the ability to say, no, it's going to be like this. And the interesting thing of a, of, of a challenge like this is that Putin is proving my point, that he's not proving my point in the sense that he grossly uh, overestimated his own strength. He's blundered into a real catastrophe for Russia at this point. Of course, it's a bigger catastrophe for the U- Ukrainian people, but, you know, from a, a like a, a bigger uh, uh uh, sort of frame. It's a huge catastrophe for Russia. But the point is, is that uh, power is the ultimate veto on any of these things that, you know, you can say, you know, uh, all sorts of priestly incantations about about higher order things. But ultimately, on on this earth, uh, the 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 triumph of one side over the other determines the actual the ability of you to make claims about anything else. Uh, so that's my my sort of I don't know if you want like a, a rational like philosophical it. argument against me. it. Yeah, Sam might not be f- fully satisfied, but I'll take it. <laughs> Go yeah. on, Sam. Yeah. Tear it down. Yeah. yeah. No. Okay. So so I think that the idea of violence as a veto is a pretty powerful one, and it's a kind of background or necessary condition for all kinds of other things that are happening. Um, but I'm not sure that that makes it sufficient to the things that you're trying to explain. And maybe maybe we do take even the the Putin case, which is, um, you know, in some in some sense, you, you know, the the cliche about how much um, how how much a sense of morale matters when you're when you're in a war. I think also applies to politics more generally. That the kind of sentiment of an army or the people more generally does end up contributing very substantially to the the success of a particular civilization and i i guess like the way that i might put it is that the the registers that you're wanting to keep keep apart um something like morality and then something like real politique you know like actual strength on the battlefield just are are genuinely muddled within the world that the reason that people act how they act the kind of stories that motivate them and then how a person like Putin can or cannot keep his people, or in this case, his military together, uh, is is a totally decisive factor when you're calculating the questions of hard power. Um, and 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 in that way, I don't. So so 
I think at that point you can say two things. You can either say, fine, so like the, the job of statecraft is to tell good but uh good stories, but ultimately fictions. Or you can say the job of statecraft is actually to be good at both of those registers simultaneously, meaning that the the actual craft of it is some is in some way um d- does like you know, completely play within the moral register. And I, I would go with the second one of those options for, for all kinds of reasons. I'm not sure I disagree, I, right? I mean, yeah. I, in the sense that, that um, but it, it's, it's a funny thing though, right? Is, is that the more you sort of look at this stuff, you see that on its own terms, it, 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 any, any, any narrative can be, can be moving. Uh, I don't know if you guys watched uh, yesterday's uh, Putin rant on, on TV where he talked about, you know, traitors to the nation, basically, you know, fifth columns, really scary Nazi stuff. But at the same time, you know, you could see exactly what he's doing. He's bucking up the people for a long struggle. You know, he's setting up the true Russian people versus, you know, disloyal uh, elements within society that I forget what the term was that he used, but like spit out like, you know, a filthy gnat or something that you by 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 mistake you, you inhale. I mean, this is foretelling uh, the kind of, you know, worse than Stalin kind of crackdown that's coming to Russia. Um, but the thing that's always struck me, and, you know, I mean, we, we read together, uh, but even before we did, uh, you know, uh, Svetlana Alexeyevich's book, I was struck by it, you know, just even uh, being in Russia in 2003 and, 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 and speaking to elderly Russians who had lived through that period and who remembered communism well. Um, now, again, these are not the people who lived through Stalin's terrors. These are people who lived through sort of late communism, which was different. Um, but but this very strong sense among the Russian people of uh, of a narrative, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, similarly, I can even tell you in my you know work in the Balkans is you know you go to Serbia and you talk to people there, normal liberal people, and you know the the their memories of the war, even the most liberal pro Western people, it still strikes you how how different and how tenacious and how actually quite frankly perfectly internally consistent it all is. Um, and actually is, is, you know, is, uh, resonant of, uh, their experiences during the war, uh, how they processed it, their sense of justice and injustice, which is bounded by the, the, both the historical and social reality of it. And, you know, so I think you're right. You, you know, a successful statesman should do both, but I, I, where I push back though, I think your essay does a very good job of, uh, articulating a more transcendent view of ideas, but I'm pretty comfortable still, even after your essay, saying that the justificatory ideas are still just stories um, that can be actually perfectly self internally consistent and even compelling to the right person at the right time with the right sort of uh, experience and having been brought up in the, that kind of society with all of its stories that are attendant to it. I where where I you know I I sort of go against the sort of democracy promotion agenda and and the stuff that I, I know drives you shoddy, you know, a sense of of transcendent justice, a, a, sen- a sense of transcendent right and wrong, is that, I don't know, I feel like I've, I've seen far too many normal, reasonable, smart people have completely orthogonal conceptions of a lot of these categories that we have. Um, and, you know, where we interpret the end of the Cold War as a triumph of clearly the ideas that are going to, you know, reshape humanity for the better. Um, even 
among the sort of liberated nations uh, within Europe, it was a different understanding of what, you know, what the West meant. It meant prosperity, not necessarily equal rights. It meant, it meant living standards going up. It meant being rid of foreign colonial powers like Russians. It meant, uh, it meant uh, that you didn't have to pay bribes all the time and things like that. And, you know, again, speaking of narratives, we cobbled together a very different one about, about right triumphing over evil. Um, which, you know, I, 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 all I'd say is just a story, one among many, that's all. No, well, uh, you know, on that point, I'm glad that you brought up good and evil because, I mean, look, these are risky categories and we know what happens when you go in the Manichaean direction of darkness and light, you know, George W. Bush, you're either with us or against us and you kind of create this epic struggle and that can distort things considerably. So, you know, that's all as a little, you know, disclaimer. That said, if I have to use the word evil, if there's any time that would be appropriate to use the word evil, Putin is evil. China, the Chinese regime is evil. And we are better. We may not be the good guys, but we are the better guys. And that is our side, and that's why our side needs to win, and that's why we should win, and that's probably why we will win. What What if the Russian people after Putin are uh, retain a lot of Putin-esque characteristics? I mean, because one of the things that really I think is very wrong about this is this idea that if only we get rid of Putin, you know, Russia will become a normal country. I, no one says it quite so stupidly, but I think it 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 it. Uh, it, it's it's an undercurrent in a lot of this stuff, and you were very careful right now to say the Chinese regime as opposed to China, and you know again I think the 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 interesting thing to me is that I think these these narratives actually far outlive any one person. I mean you know I encourage all of our 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 listeners to go watch uh, Alexei Navalny's last big. Um, uh, expose on Putin. If you if you two haven't watched it, I really encourage you. It's it's a bit of a, a time commitment. It's like an hour and change, and it's a little dense at the beginning. But if you want to see uh, a certain kind of uh, degeneracy, and I mean just sort of like a lavish degeneracy of a bunch of thieves who are creating just like this insane mafia fueled uh, uh, paradise for themselves, and imagine what's, you know, the amount of privation that they're imposing on their societies as they do it. I think one can make claims about, about uh, you know, the inherent nature of Putin and the coterie around him, uh, which I would say degenerate rather than evil is how I'd put it. Um, but but the, the bigger picture for me is, is that uh, I, I, I simply don't think that that any of this or a lot of it won't die uh, when Putin's gone. And it's not just a question of, well, you know, if only the Russian people had the right information, they would think differently. I think that's really wrong. Well, we don't need Russia to be a normal country. We just need Russia to not fuck with us. Okay, but that's different. That's closer to me. And has not, that's not a moral claim. No, but I'm just telling you in terms of like, um, I, I, right as I said it, it occurred to me that it sounded like you, but it was too late for me to shift <laughs> gears in my sense. I'm like, I'm just going to have to own this. Yeah. I said it. It's too Sam, late. Sam, Shady, Shady, let me ask, let me ask you a question. Yeah. So how, how do you think about, um, people in the Middle East that experience democracy as a threat? Like how, how does that work with your kind of moral categories around democracy? Um, well, 
I mean, some of them are, are my relatives and friends, people who hate democracy in the Middle East. They're quite common. They tend to be well-educated elites, and which is one of the reasons I'm skeptical of education as a means to progress, progress in scare quotes. The educated are sometimes the worst people when it comes to just like basic morality. But, um, but, but look, I mean, I struggle with this. I, I think that individuals are products of their environment and they don't, in some sense, they, if you've lived under authoritarianism your, your whole life and dictatorship is all you know, that distorts the human spirit. And that's one of the reasons I'm so against the authoritarian idea is because it twists people's souls. They become in some sense broken and corrupted and they're taken away from their own intrinsic nature that God created them in a, in a particular way. And then they come under the servitude of other humans and then they cease to be what they should have been or what they were. So that to me is kind of the moral categorization here. Um, so I think that can lead to a couple different conclusions. One is that if I, if I grew up in these societies and that's all I had known, there's a good chance that I'd be anti-democracy as well, that I would support terrible things, that I would support evil things. Does that make me evil? I'm not willing to go that far. And that's why I generally reserve the category of evil for regimes and not for the people who live under them because the people who live under them were deprived of their ability to be free human beings and to make choices accordingly. Where's authoritarianism come from? What do you mean? Well, I mean, you just said, you know, these people are, you know, perverted from their true selves living under this thing that besets them called authoritarianism. Where's that come from? Where's authoritarianism? What's authoritarianism rooted in? Uh, you know, is, you know, like... It's rooted in something that's part of all of us and that we have to fight, that there's a darkness. And um, I think, well, this gets into some interesting questions about human nature and to what extent, you know, we're broken by sin and the light and darkness that, you know, and there's different Christian and Islamic conceptions um, when it comes to those questions. I guess I'd say that, that there is darkness, whether you want to say that comes from within the individual as something intrinsic to us, which would be more of a Christian viewpoint versus that evil and corruption come from society if if you if you want to kind of put that into a binary it's more complicated in practice but it, to just oversimplify it those are maybe two perspectives on how corruption can happen and um so you know but just to say that there's a darkness it's in society it's in ourselves it's a it's in a mix of those two things and we have to resist that but it happens and there's no way to completely eradicate the authoritarian temptation it will be with us but that's part of a broader long-term struggle. So like what I, what I really like about how you're um, discussing that is that there is some sort of background sense of, I mean, it's I'm, like in philosophical terms, it's like a metaphysic. Like you think that there is something about human beings that in a particular society is being twisted or, or distorted in some way. And I think, I think that's, that's really, really fascinating. I, the thing that I would say, um, I guess like in some way to both of you, like, so 
to Demir's point, I think that the fact that there are many, many narratives doesn't mean that there's nothing true in any of them. I think it means that, um, you know, figuring out what's real is hard and all kinds of stories are going to cult cultivate an attentiveness to specific aspects of what's real, but not to everything. And it seems to me that not only, um, you know, like individual human life, but even statecraft in some way depends on being able to be good at that, like understanding what the background substance of human life is, and then calibrating how you build a state in relation to that. And that, I mean, this is, this is the point about how, um, you know, how, how sort of like short lived particular political projects can end up being like that, that they, they are able, you know, there's a, there's a, um, an essay that we read in, in, uh, our philosophy seminar together about, um, by Hannah Arendt about violence. And the point that she makes is that violence is really good as a veto. Like it can go in and destroy a society, but you need a lot of other attributes to be able to build one. And, and that's, I, I think that that's exactly kind of the point here, which is that, you know, Putin may well be able to wipe the slate clean in Ukraine. And I mean, that, that in itself is extremely tragic. Um, but the, but the question of how he might actually build now, like even if he's able to pull off the violence question, which I think is, is, is a real one now, I, it's not at all clear that he is actually going to be successful in that way. But even if he were able to do that, the question of what he could build that would be sustainable, I think is a different one. Oh, I mean, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think he's incapable of building. I mean, that's what I was getting at with the that Navalny documentary, which again, I, I warmly commend to all our listeners and you guys in particular, just spend some time with it. It's, it's remarkable. Uh, you see the incapacity to build. It's even manifest in the fact that this mansion and mansion palace, palace undersells it for, for what, what he's actually building on the Black Sea for himself alone, um, is, uh, is that it's still not built that he can't even build that, the, the kind of endemic corruption and the inability to even conceive of what he wants to a certain extent, it's, it's still under construction in many ways. It's, it's just a, a money hole that gets poured into. So I, I don't contest that at all. Um, it's, it's that, uh, I, you know, I, I feel like I can describe all of this uh, without recourse to, uh, to questions of right and wrong that I think when I do gives us a clear way of how to proceed and not get distracted by a lot of these things. Because, you know, Sam, I mean, you and I have talked about this, uh, but let me just throw it out there for, for listeners and then you can react. Um, you know, you read Plato, you read all the, the, the dialogues with Socrates and, and, and you know, in, they're, they're all actually, quite frankly, like your essay, I think very, very open uh, and, you know, ask you to engage uh, with these questions and sort of probe them. But when you say, you know, I mean, what Socrates, for me, at least, fails at, um, even in the Republic, which is meant to, I think, address this, is the question of uh, what does it take to build a state? And, you know, I've always thrown back at you, uh, Machiavelli, as, you know, I think a someone that I you know, I find more useful in thinking about these sorts of terms, uh, these sorts of things. And what's interesting about Machiavelli, he doesn't really worry so much about uh, building a transcendently good uh, state, or at least not in moral terms. I think, you know, he will grant you all sorts of things about uh, what the durability of a state, what kind of modes and orders need to be put in place for it to be durable over time. 
And I guess one can read a kind of morality into that. Uh, but I'm not sure that's what any of us think of when we think of morality. It's closer to what Shadi's talking about of a kind of revulsion at the evil um, and fallenness and these questions of corruption of an, an otherwise inherently good soul or something like that. What I like about Machiavelli is he, he has no truck with that. Uh, he just talks about uh, a certain kind of general necessary cravenness to humanity, uh, to leveraging all sorts of uh, tools to be able to shape something that lasts. And I think it, it ends there for Machiavelli. And I find that, that, you know, I don't think that necessarily describes all of human experience, but I think it sufficiently and I think very clearly describes almost everything we need to think about things like war and peace and the broader world. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually really like that, that way of framing it. And in part because I think that the kind of crisis that, um, you know, as you said earlier, so Putin looks like he's trying to look at the West and see it um, as fairly fragile and delicate. And then he thought he could kick at it and see what would crumble. And it turns out that um, he he had a much less forceful kick than he than he thought he he did. And and yet, I do think that there still is this big question about where the West is, how strong it is, and and that is Machiavelli's question. You know, like the what's going to last? How can it last? Why is it why is it fragile or why is it strong? Um, and I I suppose the way that I see that crisis, like the kind of the broader frame of the crisis of democracy versus authoritarianism, or or however people are framing it, is that the West has somehow lost um, its own feel for where the sources for its own renewal might come from. And and that that does seem like a very significant and very crippling question. And I guess what I would put to you is that I think that's the question that Socrates is trying to address in some, in some basic sense. It's like, where are the sources for renewal for human life as a whole? And those may end up also being sources that make it so that a particular state can succeed. I think um, at least Aristotle seems to draw those kinds of conclusions from what Socrates is saying. But um, you know, there's a, there's a very famous um, actually the the dialogue that happens just before the one that I cite in this piece. Um, Socrates is in jail shortly before this dinner party that we've been talking about, where he has to then go drink hemlock, and a rich aristocrat comes to him and tries to tries to break him out and says, like, look, it would be totally shameful for me. Everyone knows I'm your friend. And if I didn't take my massive wealth and come and try to get you out of get you out of the situation, um, it would you know like it would be a, a horrible mark on, on my own reputation. And um, Socrates immediately shuts him down and says, "No, it's better to suffer injustice than to do injustice." And it it seems to me that that's basically the question that we're trying to to work to wrestle with is that in some in some basic way. Um, the kinds of societies that we're inhabiting at the moment don't quite understand their own place for renewal. And unless they get some some sense of how to gain that that source for renewal, they are going to end up being really fragile. And and that is a, just a basic matter for statecraft in that sense. Mm. No, I like that. That's it for the main episode, dear listeners. Become a paying member at wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe to get access to the rest of this conversation and many other bonus episodes besides. Hope to see you in the bonus.